The Singaporean passport is the number one passport in the world, which is a weird flex. But hey, this tiny little island city that's smaller than Berlin has more visa exemptions than every other country in the world. I mean, we're tied in first place with Japan, but whatever. But that got me thinking. Our passports are a status symbol telling us and the world who we are, and it's our ticket to the opportunities we seek outside of our home countries. So, is your passport a blessing or a curse? And if you are one of the few people in this world that aren't able to have a passport, how do you move and travel? How does it affect how you see yourself? And what does your national allegiance look like? It is very tricky, right? Because even though you don't want to be defined by borders and your identity, if you change your passport, that's how the world is going to see you. Welcome to Asia's Not a Country. I'm your host, Natalina Pereira, and also the proud holder of one of the best passports in the world. Which, of course, is a privilege. Not many other countries around Asia or in Asia have that same privilege. And for many immigrants and migrants, our passport is probably the most precious and important item we possess. Even though I live in Germany now and can technically travel around the EU with just my ID... I still bring my passport along out of habit and maybe because I'm a little worried that my ID won't suffice because of the way I look. If my apartment was on fire, I would grab two things, my dog and my passport. My husband, he can save himself. So it's always funny when I hear stories about friends or colleagues who realize a few days before or on the way to the airport that they now need their passports to travel to the UK. Thank you, Brexit. It honestly seems like such a first world European privilege to not have to think about this. As a foreigner, my passport is my life. It is also an extension of my body, of my foreign being in this country and region of the world. And at the height of this pandemic, my passport was also the only reason and way I could fly back home to see my family. So you can imagine the mental hoops I had to jump through when I found out that a friend of a friend who is a foreigner living in Berlin doesn't own a passport. How? Why? What happened? How did he survive the nightmare that is the Ausländerbehörde, which for the uninitiated, that's the immigration office, also known as the scariest place in Germany for foreigners. Those were the thoughts and questions I had in my head when I heard about Liam. This bureaucratic limbo was so compelling that I just had to speak to him to find out how this has shaped his experience of living in Berlin. And so we started at the beginning of Liam's life. So I grew up in the southwestern part of China, so where you can find a lot of pandas and also the native ones that are not from the zoo. But anyway, um, that's where I grew up. My mom at the time wanted to like change career and for her it seemed like the most sensible choice and it was around the time when they got um, divorced. She wanted to get as far as possible and Hong Kong, if you see on the map, is the geographical corner off the map. So I think that was one of the primary reasons why she left. Then later, um, I moved to Hong Kong, and that's where I stayed. And how easy is it for someone who's living in China to move to Hong Kong? It's honestly so surreal because Hong Kong was a British colony. So borders 
pretty much still exist and you see that immediately. And also once you're like over on the other side of the border, there are different sets of laws, rules, customs, and culture. I think a lot of people, they probably don't really know that there's this ongoing hostility from local Hong Kongese people towards the people who migrated from mainland China, this age-old economic migrant issue, also this innate hostility. Sometimes it's really hard to place that, but you, you could feel it because the language is the primary issue here because when you speak Mandarin, it pretty much makes you stand out in a crowd and immediately... Um, so there's like this ongoing process of othering if you're like from mainland China and you just landed in a city where you don't necessarily speak the language because Cantonese is actually quite hard to learn as yeah, a second language. Exactly. And, I also know growing up when you when Singaporeans would go to Hong Kong for holiday, especially <laughs> Chinese Singaporeans, people will warn you do not speak Mandarin. <laughs> if you look Chinese, they might be really mean to you because they think you're from mainland China. It, Right. What you also I, basically experienced. I can totally corroborate that. There was actually <laughs> a very famous internet case the other, I don't know, like a couple of years back. It was like this Singaporean mom with her kid. They were just talking. And then she got like told off, like, don't talk to your children in public or something. And they were like, oh, you mainlanders have no manners. You're just so loud in public. And the woman was like, um, actually, I'm Singaporean. And... <laughs> And the person that was berating her just fell silent. It's like, oh, oh my god, I'm, I'm so sorry. Welcome. Have have a great time. <laughs> have a great holiday. That is that is very real. Sometimes you know, like when I go to like these supermarkets or pharmacies, if you really want to have a quality service or like just get it without being bothered or or berated for no reason. Sometimes I'll just switch to English because it's like an entirely different attitude if you yeah. use like... The colonial hangover. Yeah, the colonial you know, hangover, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. How was that process for your mom and you to move over to Hong Kong? Like, how did that happen? Honestly, I feel like when it happened, I was still pretty young. Um, I was probably just like right out of primary school. But I do vaguely remember... There were a lot of like bureaucratic procedures. We didn't, we had to get like a paternal test to prove that I am her child. Like according to the law, you can only take one child with you or two. I don't know. There's a quota and they have to be directly related to you because it's part of like the immigration control complex. And it's like a bunch of paperwork. I think the entire process maybe took about one or two years. Mm-hmm. And then... I think for her, it even took a little bit longer because she had to migrate first before I could get there. And also, once you're in Hong Kong, you had to stay for six months when you just get there before you get all your documents. So essentially, you're kind of stuck in this space. I, I think it's quite similar to a lot of other countries. They wouldn't really let you leave yeah. before you get your papers. But that's like, as far as I remembered, when I come to think of it, I think it's really a strenuous process like a manifestation of really racialized or immigration control even though like racialized is quite an interesting word here because looking at the origins of people were technically from a very like similar culture i mean of course there's like the cantonese or like the mainland china whatever but it's quite interesting how as you were saying right this colonial hangover has brought in this maybe if not racialized by like a immigration control based on geographical mm-hmm. Demarcations. 
could I ask you a bit about what you said before? So your mother had to move over before you could move over. Right, yeah. So was there a period in time where your mom was in Hong Kong on her own without you? Yeah, yeah, right. How long was that? It was quite long. I felt like maybe like my entire childhood even because I didn't even I didn't even like see her till like I was three or four and she would like come back occasionally because she was like always busy with work um but I think for her to get the papers even took a little bit longer but I don't know like the exact details yeah so just so I know like the, the just get an idea of the time frame so when your mother moved over you were how old um maybe I was Two or three. I don't know. Okay. Right. And when you moved over, you were? No, I, it was 2008. So I was 12. Wait, so you were away from your mom for 10 years? or Right. But I don't know if that was actually like the mandated, like, you know, yeah. length of time they have to do. Maybe she just like decided to do it later uh, when I was a little bit older. But, mm-hmm. but it did take her like a couple of years, I think. Yeah. And so you didn't really grow up with your mom, but were you with your dad or like with a family member at, at that point? Yeah, I was kind of like shifting through different homes because nobody is really there all the time. Usually I'm like at different family members' house or like later at a boarding school. I think the first word that came to my mind is that it is very fragmented. This feeling of being constantly at different homes you never truly see home for a community of feelings. It's more like a place where you have your sustenance or like basic livelihoods met. But it's never like a place where you see like a lot of kinship or like bonds or like connections. It's always about like the fact that you're a guest there. If you were to put it in a film, it's probably one of those like art house films that <laughs> don't really have a plot. <laughs> But you have like sometimes these like, oh, dramatic zoom in shots or some kind of musings about life, but it doesn't really tell you a story. But somehow, you know, in the end, you always get evoked into having like certain feelings. That's how I felt like, even though like it doesn't have like this uh, definitive tangible form, but somehow you do feel these feelings of like, oh, you know, it's never like a very stable sense of belonging or like uh, security. I'm always, I'm, I'm on the move. Yeah. Um, waiting for the, the next possibility to be uprooted or like just to leave again. And how about when your mother came home to, to China to visit you? Do you have memories of that? Like, how did you feel when you saw her again? It was honestly a very a weird experience because I think for her, of course, to see your offspring, you would have this natural tendency to think that they're going to be attached to you or like they like you. But I was just very confused. On the one hand, she was pretty much very eager to to get me to like get to know her or like to understand that she's my mother but I was like I actually don't know you every time when she's back there's always very little window of, of time for us to actually spend a lot of time together so I'm like you're expecting too much from me yeah. and I always feel like oh my god you wanted to be like mother and child in a real sense but I, like objectively I see the fact that you are my mother but since we never like spent a lot of time together I also was having a really hard time feeling the attachment or like not to like piss her off but also like I can't just pretend to be your child. 
Yeah. And, um, but yeah, it's quite contradictory. But I always felt like that when I when I saw her as a kid. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if that also has to do with being a filial child. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of conversations I have with my friends about parents who are absent or parents who are not really good parents, you know, maybe abusive parents. We somehow feel the need to be like, oh, but that's my my father or my mother and I should have a, a good relationship to them just because they have this title to exactly. their, their relationship with us. Yeah. And I, I guess this is what you're getting at, right? You have yeah. a mother in terms of like a biological mother, but it wasn't the close you know, we have a real relationship where we have memories together, kind of uh, yeah. a mother-son relationship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, like I also, I think now I felt a lot more compassionate towards how she was feeling back then mm-hmm. because I did get it. If you have a child that you have to leave behind, but then you do want to reconnect with them. I mean, those like years of time were essentially lost, but... I think it's better to like create like new memories or do things together again. But I think it's one of the regrets she has. Maybe it is very um, true what you pointed out, like the, this filial sense that you feel towards your parents. And yeah. but then also when you don't feel like that, then you're like stuck in mm-hmm. like a weird space. Like yeah. what do you do? And it's very confusing, I think, for a child mm-hmm. to navigate. Yeah, I I totally get it. Also from from me, I don't speak to my father. We're estranged. And every time, even for my wedding, I didn't invite him. And everybody was like, but he's your father. I was like, okay, he was not a very good father. Um, so I, I, I really understand where, where that comes from, or the sense of having to fulfill a duty. Mm-hmm. When you did eventually move to Hong Kong with, uh, with your mom, what was that experience like? Did you kind of, I guess, had to get to know her right. all over again. Yeah, because their marriage didn't really end up in a good place. It was like a really ugly divorce. So when I was growing up with my paternal side of the extended family, they were always like shit talking about her. Mm-hmm. So I got a very distorted and just unfair representation of her. But of course, like we know how misinformation works. Yeah. If you want to get like one channel of or source of information, you're bound to believe that if that's the only reality that you know. Of course, when I see her, I w- was going to associate what I've heard with her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, like she didn't understand that. Then I was like, "We're trying. We're like in constant negotiation." I have very like little memory of that for some strange reason, but I do remember it to be challenging because we we're spending a lot of time together, and she wanted to get to know me, but I was like, "No, I actually." didn't want to share yeah. a lot because somehow, even though I knew objectively she was my mother, but I didn't feel comfortable or seen enough to share what I know or what my life was like before we started living together. And if we go back, because you mentioned now you were also with your paternal grandparents um, and a lot of other family members right. are in this nine, 10 year period of being alone. Do you remember who you ended up bonding with the most in that time period of being away from your mother? Honestly, nobody. Because now they're all like estranged or like fallen out of my life in one way or another. The more I reflect on the family dynamics of of everyone and you really start to see this element of intergenerational trauma and it's Mm -hmm. so clear. If you see like starting from my grandparents and see how 
how they managed to deal with each other over the course of decades, and all all those toxic traits that they had were not only inherited but also magnified in their in our descendants and and they like generation of my mother they managed to re- reproduce that but of course like each and every single one of them has their own like contortions and like pathologies in in one way or another but in the broader part of the family it's not a very supportive nor uh, healthy environment at the end of it we always somehow ended up being estranged mm-hmm. it took me a long time to realize that because also this you know, filial duty that you felt like, oh yeah, you're part of the family. You should not just walk away from them. But sometimes I feel like in order to to preserve yourself, it's so necessary. Otherwise, you're just going to be consumed or like completely absorbed in it and you cannot leave in the end. Yeah. But I, I listened to that and I really can relate in so many ways. First, like, for the lack of a better term, the Asian family drama. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like with my family, my, my mom, who's Chinese American, my father who's Indian, so she was disowned by her father. Um, so I, I, I understand. Um, yeah, and I mean, maybe also going back to what you said about the paternal grandparents talking, I guess, bad about your mother, and then you kind of having to get to know your mom again when you went to Hong Kong. Do you feel like you were fact-checking in a way? Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of fact-checking sometimes it became like a tribunal because (laughs) you're fed into whirlpools of misinformation like you know oh she took like thousands and thousands of money when she left and of course as a child you wanted to like know the truth so i would just like list everything i was like is it is it true that you did this and then (laughs) and that's when everything came under light it was all like um you know, a very elaborately weaved web of lies that they were trying to indoctrinate me with mm-hmm. to distance myself from her. But I did some investigative journalism. <laughs> Tender age <laughs> yeah, of 12. Yes. <laughs> and then, um, but of course, that could have like aggravated the um, the overall family dynamics. Um, and I, I kind of want to bring us back to this this tribunal, I guess, mm-hmm. that you had with your mother. Have you talked about it since? Have you ever picked up the topic with your mom now that you're much older and reconciling a lot of your childhood with her? Has she ever expressed how she felt in that point of time? I don't know, because I feel like maybe the topic came up um, once or twice. Mm -hmm. um, And her reaction has always been that she felt very indignated that such rumors were spread about her and that became like the roadblock in our uh, relationship for the longest time. I came to a place where I felt like I need to let that part go and see what we're going to do from this point onwards. But I don't know how she feels about that. We barely talked about it, actually. But And how's your relationship with your mother today? We don't really talk very often. Um, after I moved to Hong Kong, I left again and then I came back like later. So like the total amount of time we spend living together in my life is not more than two, three years. So now like we try to keep in touch, but also there's this like taciturn understanding that we are just not as 
closes like a normal, quote unquote, normal mother and child relationship. And that still kind of like sets the undertone of our relationship. And I do feel that she wants to get a lot closer, but there's really no foundation. And I think the best we could do is to see what we're going to do from this point, but also with this entire set of like value and belief systems from that generation. I feel like she's not going to understand all my choices or how I live my life. So I also don't feel completely at ease with, with sharing how I feel or what I'm doing all the time. And Yeah. Um, I, I think just listening to you say that it must be really difficult to also try and build a relationship because you're so far away, right? right yeah. And this... The pandemic did not help. Um, where do you get your sense of belonging from, if, if not your mom? Because you spend so little time together. Right. Um, I think it's like one of those feelings I was like trying to first decipher and locate and then try to process what belonging actually is. In the end, I realized my sense of belonging cannot be anchored in a cultural or familial context because that is bound by a lot of things that are not changeable, like blood ties or like your nationality, your ethnicity, your identity. In a... So over the years, I think I try to get away from that. And what I found really uh, reassuring and also just comforting is mm -hmm. like these parallels that I see between cultures Let me caveat that, like, sometimes when I eat Chinese food or, like, meet a bunch of people who are able to speak my language, I, of course, feel the sense of, like, oh, I actually belong to a people and a culture. But also, just because you're from the same country doesn't mean that you are in any shape or form any more similar than um, any of my friends. And I feel like there are sometimes more chasms among people than similarities. So over time, I think I try to seek out, like, what I truly enjoying life or like trying to find out like the connections that I could have with my friends and somehow I can relate to that and having like a, a compassion driven approach to relationships you feel there's like a sense of belonging because you share similar feelings and similar experience mm -hmm. not because some inherent identity of yours and that's how I felt yeah and I think one of the reasons I really wanted to speak with you is because I found out through a mutual friend of ours that you don't have a passport. Right. And as a foreigner living in Berlin, that seems like a, a bureaucratic nightmare, especially in a country like Germany. So how exactly did that happen? Right. It is honestly fascinating. It's like the primary example of subjugating people as second-class immigrants and citizens without rights. So essentially, the legal status I have in Hong Kong is similar to a green card in the U.S. with the difference that it doesn't really have an expiry date. And it, it essentially is a citizenship, but it's for people who migrated to Hong Kong but have not stayed for seven consecutive years. Mm -hmm. Because When you just get there, they're only give you a secondary status that's called like a Hong Kong citizen, but you're not a permanent citizen. But then there's also not a time time stamp on my citizenship. It's not like mine's going to expire anytime soon. I just don't have certain rights. And one of them being 
the travel document that I have because the Hong Kong passport is actually pretty powerful. It has visa exemptions for like more than maybe a hundred twenty or thirty uh, countries. For people like me, they give you like this yellow uh, Hong Kong document document of identity for visa purposes. Yes, a very long name, and it is. The worst passport in the world. It doesn't have any visa exemptions. I mean, with this document, I still have to acknowledge that it is easier for me to apply for a visa than for holders of other passports from developing countries. But in terms of visa exemptions, it's the worst. I don't have any visa exemptions. And and then the second difference I think with the citizenship is that you also don't have political or civil social rights. Because Hong Kong has these like similar public housing schemes like、yeah. Singapore, but then you have to be a permanent citizen to even be on a roster. Also, you can't vote. So essentially, you're like a citizen without rights. You're in a very liminal space. I think the Hong Kong passport has visa exemptions for 170 countries. Yeah. Oh wow. Which is a lot. That's a lot. In lieu of a passport, you have the document of identity for visa purposes. And when I look this up on Wikipedia,、uh, <laughs> it tells me that this document is mostly given out to Chinese citizens who've migrated to Hong Kong on、yeah. a one-way permit, which is, I, I guess, what you did. Yeah. Um. So you've lost your mainland hukou, which、yeah. is the Chinese system of registration. Right. Yeah. So does that mean that you can never go back to China? You could, but you have to renounce your Hong Kong citizenship. I have to like tell the Hong Kong government I don't want to be part of your citizenry anymore. So I have to go back to China then file for another passport. Okay. But it's also very convoluted, and it's probably going to take a long time. Yeah. And, but yeah, it's actually quite an interesting fact that you captured. It is very true that document is usually given to Chinese citizens migrating through the one-way permit, but for a lot of quote-unquote expats, I think they get a different document. Um. So, could I ask why you didn't stay in Hong Kong for those seven years to get the passport? Hong Kong is a very intriguing space. It's very different when you visit, and it's an entirely different world if you live there. There's so much like wealth inequality, and even though I like the city a lot, but like the upward mobility is really, really rigid. It's also like a city controlled by a bunch of, to be crude, a bunch of oligarchs. It's not somewhere I want to stay long term to nurture my growth, and it felt a lot, a lot of times just like very suffocating and very like. Fast-paced, and you could tell from your day-to-day interactions with people that those people in the city are not happy at all.、Mm-hmm. They're always hustling from one job to to the other, and or from one place to to the other. But、um, with a progressively worse political situation, it's only going to get. Yeah, a lot worse. I think, especially in Germany, when I tell someone that I'm from Singapore, they're like, "Oh, Singapore is great. Why would you want to move to Berlin? Like, Singapore is so clean. The food is great.、Uh, the weather. I mean, the weather really is great. Now I can appreciate it.、Um, but like you said, it's a really different experience visiting Singapore for a week and living there for your whole life. Similarly, the political situation is not great. We we don't have a democracy. It's a fake democracy.、Mm. Homosexuality is a crime. Right. And if I think if you're someone who really believes in justice, fairness, all those things, it's not the happiest place、uh, no. in the world. It's actually really depressing. Yeah. So I choose to live in Berlin, where I am treated like a second-class citizen, but I feel <laughs> a lot happier. You I, know. I absolutely feel that because I feel like 
Yeah, like, I feel like these, like, small city... It's not even small. I feel like Hong Kong and Singapore are so much bigger than Berlin. Yeah. But (laughs) it's like, you really feel like you're in a gilded cage. Yeah. Everything is provided for... You have, like, access to anything in the world because it's so international, Mm -hmm. so accessible. And because I think for both Singapore and Hong Kong as, like, island cities, the resource constraint is a huge issue. And with a vast population... There's just a lot of competition. Yeah, I think it's just like way too much. It's it's very cutthroat. Yeah, it's it's, very it's cut you through. or me, you know, even in school, you'll never share your notes because <laughs> you don't want the other person to do better than you in jobs as well, promotions. You're always trying to out, outdo yeah. your colleagues. It's, it's not as collaborative as, mm. as what I've experienced no. um, in Berlin. No, absolutely not. And Sometimes when you're on a train, you're like walking faster than the other person. Yeah. <laughs> like, people, like it's honestly um, tiny victories is, tiny, is yeah. what I call it. You really feel like people would go out of their way to either feel superior or yes. like trying to like make your day hell. And I'm going to sound very hypocritical <laughs> right now, but I want to ask if you have any allegiance to Hong Kong or to China because I complain about Singapore. I just did like five minutes ago. I complain right. about Singapore all the time but the moment someone who isn't singaporean says one bad thing about singapore and god forbid the food i am ready for a takedown you know i'm like i'm ready to go let's go you don't know anything about singapore so i'm wondering if you would react the same if you heard someone who's not from hong kong not from china say something bad about these places do you feel like you want to stand up for these countries i think usually depends on uh what kind of commentary quote-unquote criticisms are if it's about food i will fight them any day any in any situation because usually those accusations are either unfounded or coming out of a mouth that doesn't even have any palates for the appreciation (laughs) of great food so had it been legitimate criticism that is based on reasoning and years of gourmet experience i accept that but for a country a lot of times that doesn't even season their food. I wonder what kind of legitimacy is coming from that. But aside from that, I feel like, especially, you know, like criticisms of like non, non-democratic non regimes, yep. sometimes are very legitimate. But the issue is a lot of these criticisms or like commentaries are sometimes really racialized and they don't make a differentiation between Chinese political system and Chinese people. And a lot of these like conflation, I feel like has led to this antagonization and vilification of Chinese people. And in turn, like I feel like that has increased a lot of these anti-Asian hate that's pretty much based on this like hostility towards China. Um, So I feel like it really depends on what they're talking about because I think if it's a legit political criticism, I'm like, yes, I see your point. But then again, I really have to see like who's actually voicing these opinions because usually if it's coming from... If it's coming from white people, I'm like hypervigilant. So I think it's a little bit nuanced, but... Um, what is not nuanced is food. That account. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I'll be very territorial. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, and are there plans for you to get a German citizenship? Do you want to, quote unquote, belong to a country <laughs> at some point? That's the thing, because I feel like, of course, there's always the practicality of that, the mobility, the rights, 
But on the flip side of it, as much as I don't want to kind of subscribe to the sense of nation states and identity, you have to identify with some parts of the German culture or the German nationality or one. Or maybe you don't have to. Maybe you can reckon with it on your own terms. But there are a lot of perks. Yeah. So more <laughs> the practicality side, you feel like that would be great to have all of that. Right. But um, it is very tricky, right? Because even though you don't want to be defined by borders and your identity, but if you change your passport, that's how the world is going to see you. Mm-hmm. You're going to be a German citizen. That raises a lot of questions. And I feel like I need to kind of sort them out before I actually get it. And maybe I will. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I think that's a conversation I'm having in my head all the time. Because technically I could I, I could get a German citizenship because I've lived here for long enough. Right. Um, and I always thought I would just because I don't see a need to keep my Singaporean citizenship. Mm-hmm. I always felt in my mind and in my heart that I could lose the Singaporean citizenship, but I would still be Singaporean. There's nothing about me that is German. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have the lived cultural experience of being a German. When I hear Germans talk about their childhood, they talk about uh, random TV shows. And I'm like, oh, it's I don't know. Tur- I'm about the mouse. It's <laughs> yeah. a mouse TV show. <laughs> Was it that Tom and Jerry? No. No, but that no, that is like I, is my childhood. Yeah, that Singapore. is my childhood. Exactly. Cartoon yeah. Network. Thank you, USA. <laughs> but like, I don't have all those lived German experiences. And I feel like if I even if I lose my Singaporean citizenship, I'm a Singaporean at heart. I speak in a very Singaporean way. So I don't know. Just hearing you say that, I'm, I feel like I'm really processing this idea of do I want to be bound to, to borders? Yeah. And now I feel very confused and... But, I've launched myself into <laughs> existential crisis now. <laughs> no, but that's also like a very valid feeling because I do agree because I, even if I change my citizenship, right, I also I'm not going to feel fundamentally 100% German mm. just because I have a new passport now. But I think the issue is like also how the world sees you. And when you're a holder of a document that gives yep. you so much access to different things and um, I don't know if I have something similar in Singapore, but for instance, uh, in Hong Kong or China, if you have like a different passport, you're like of Chinese descent or whatever. But um, sometimes there's a lot of like this like mixed feeling, you know, this notion that if you're like patriotic enough, you will never leave your country behind, yep. which is not something I'm grappling with. Do you think depending on the citizenship that you get, would, will you be seen as a traitor or someone who's like leveled up? You know, I don't even know. That's the thing with different people. It's a roulette. So you never know how they feel. Sometimes it's a combination of both. <laughs> but I don't know. But is that the same in Singapore? Your passport is actually better than a German one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just Singapore passport is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I feel like you've talked a lot about maybe being in different countries and in some sense, would it be fair to say you kind of live in a sort of limbo in, in a way, right? Culturally as well being in very different Chinese cultures or like ethnically Chinese cultures. Do you feel that this sense of limbo has translated to other parts of your life? Have you experienced living in a weird sort of liminal space? Um, That's a great question. Um, I feel like somehow like over time, these like liminal spaces have become the anchor of my life because uh, I'm just recalling, I think, 
maybe Edward Said's um, quote in Orientalism. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Um, uh, when one stays far enough or at a distance from their own culture, um, they can fully appreciate or criticize their own culture as well as to see other culture in a light that kind of enlightens them or triggers them. And for me, these liminal spaces are kind of like that because being at a distance, being on a periphery gives me a lot of insights, a lot of nuanced understanding of my own culture. Like I'm seeing Chinese culture in American context, in the South Southeast Asian context, sometimes even in places where you wouldn't even imagine seeing Chinese people. Um, but apart from my own culture, I feel like in these liminal spaces, it's also so much easier for me to be truly like intrigued by the cultures that are very different from me, mm-hmm. uh, from mine. Sometimes I have this dilemma of not having enough Chinese friends, Chinese as in like born and raised um, mainland China, in these like pretty much unidimensional identity where you feel like you're together just because you're from the same country. Sometimes I feel like I need to see you for who you are rather than just like one story told or like made commonly known through some orthodox culture or collective society's imagination of what um, what you should be like as an individual. Yeah. And what, it's a hard question, but what does being Chinese mean to you then or being Asian I don't know which one you identify more right I think it's it's really interesting because before I left Hong Kong like you would never like in my context like refer yourself refer to yourself as like Asian but I feel like now I have like an intricate relationship with the term because on the one hand I do feel like the term Asian is a pretty much orientalistic construction of this like oh boundless territory mystic esoteric but i just feel like it's very reductionistic it doesn't really describe um who i am and also omits like other essential parts like west asia which is not middle east apparently and also central asia like south asia that is that are routinely dismissed. On the other hand, though, I think for a lot of diasporic communities, for like people who don't have a very definitive sense of cultural belonging, sometimes it can also be empowering. And for me, I feel like I would always be maybe culturally Chinese, but then again, I'm not the best advocate for that because sometimes there are a lot of things I don't know either. But that's not the only thing I want to define myself with. It's just one part of my identity. This conversation with Liam has forced me to reevaluate a lot of the notions of home and identity that I held. For one, I never really gave a second thought about giving up my Singaporean citizenship and taking on a German one. I don't believe that having a German passport would make me German. But after this conversation, I, I really am asking myself now if not having the Singaporean passport would make me less Singaporean, would somehow disconnect me from everything that I grew up with or know. I almost envy the fact that Liam is so comfortable with this state of limbo and how it has allowed him to examine his identity and define his cultural belonging on his terms. I'm also really inspired by Liam to veer more 
often into the discomfort zone of all the aspects of my life and my cultural identity. It's not likely that I'm going to allow my passport to expire anytime soon, but the ease and calmness in which he approaches identity politics is rather inspirational. Thank you for listening to Asia's Not a Country. Make sure to follow the show wherever you listen. Leave a review because that really helps us. You can also follow us on Instagram at asiasnotacountry.podcast. Share this with your friends, colleagues, and hey, maybe even in your family WhatsApp group. This episode is hosted and produced by me, Nathalina Pereira. My co-producers are Jasmine Bayomi and Ines Blasius. This episode was edited by Ines Blasius. Mixing and sound design by Dominic Etchley. Music Epidemic Sound. 